This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 182nd edition of the program. Today is March 1st, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us for the first time, or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Amala, Gary Worrell, Gregory Clark, Gunnar Michelson, John Kelly, Leanne Kogert, Martin Girl, Mike Lewis, Nice Marisau, Ray Johnson, Robin Hood, Roseanne Russo Cavender, Rosemary Ochio Grosso, Sebastian Hess, Ujesu, and Vincent. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport or you can now join through YouTube itself for $4.99 per month by clicking on join underneath any one of our videos. So let's go ahead and get into the show. We've got a jam-packed episode for you guys. First, we'll talk about Bernie's 2020 campaign and what he was able to achieve within just one week of his launch. I'll also share my overall impressions of Bernie Sanders' CNN with Town Hall, and we'll also get into the specifics about what I liked about him and talk about CNN's disingenuous genuous nature when it comes to who they chose to ask questions. Additionally, ex-Clinton staffers are attacking Bernie Sanders because he wanted to fly in private jets while he campaigned for Hillary Clinton in 2016 in order to be more efficient. And also Politico is claiming that he shouldn't fly in private jets if he claims to care about climate change. And you'll see that very same line of attack by Tucker Carlson, except unfortunately for Tucker, when he made this argument, he ended up face-planting. Additionally, we'll talk about how Bernie Sanders is walking a fine line in order to please everyone when it comes to Venezuela, but isn't really making anyone too happy. But he's not alone because other 2020 candidates like Elizabeth Warren are taking one step forward and two steps back with regard to their 2020 chances. And also, we'll talk about Politico's smear of Namiki Konst, Ivanka Trump's rich-planning of people earning what they get, Michael Cohen's testimony before the House Oversight Committee, and Amy Klobuchar but you're eating a salad with a comb. That's a true story. <laughs> so we'll get to all of that in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's do it. By now, unless you're living under a rock, then you know that Bernie Sanders had a phenomenal first day after he announced that he's running for president again in 2020 because he raised $6 million within the first 24 hours. And he signed up hundreds of thousands of people to volunteer for him. So that essentially sent shockwaves through the establishment because they kept telling us, well, you know, Bernie Sanders, he lost his 2016 mojo and there's no longer a there there and his supporters probably won't be there for him this time around. But he just proved all of them wrong. So we know that the first 24 hours, which was really important, was a gigantic success for Bernie Sanders. However, now we know how he did within the first week. 
And the numbers are absolutely astonishing and even better than I could have hoped for or expected they would be. Because overall, as the New York Times reports, he managed to raise $10 million within the first week. Now, he also just surpassed Joe Biden when it comes to polling in New Hampshire and also got a substantial boost nationally. And most importantly, this is huge for him. He expanded his support base substantially because 40% of his total donations came from brand new supporters. Let me repeat that. 40% of donations that Bernie Sanders got came from new, new donors. donors. That right there is the most important indicator because it shows that Bernie Sanders isn't just getting the crew back together, but he is amassing an even larger following. So I don't know if any of you watched Mighty Ducks 2. It was one of my favorite movies as a child, but it kind of opens with, you know, um, the coach telling the main kid, I forgot his name, to get the crew back together, and he goes skating around to get the team back together, but then, you know, later on in the movie, they get a bunch of new teammates. That's what it reminded me of. You know, the team's back together, but now we have even more people. His support base has grown, and to see that it grew by 40%, that is just amazing. Now, additionally, as Michael Burke of The Hill reports, there are also more than 48,000 donors who have agreed to give Sanders recurring donations. Those recurring donations will be worth more than $1 million in total per month, The Times reported, citing statistics provided by the Sanders campaign. According to The Times, the average contribution was less than $26. Now, that's also really important because... These recurring donations for candidates, it means that they can actually plan, they can invest in certain states, and it's extremely beneficial. But the fact that he has more than a million dollars per month just so far within the first week, again, it's great. Now, on top of that, he has assembled a massive grassroots organizing machine and I'm going to let him just make the announcement because his goal was $1 million people signing up to volunteer. Here's what he has to say about that. Hey everybody, I am happy to tell you uh, that today we have reached an historic threshold in our 2020 campaign. Less than one week after we began this campaign, we now have one million volunteers in every congressional district in this country who are prepared to roll up their sleeves and get to work to make sure that we win the Democratic nomination, that we defeat Trump, and that we transform the economic and political life of our country. I think all of you understand that when we talk about health care for all, when we talk about raising the minimum wage, when we talk about combating climate change, we are taking on enormously powerful special interests. You know who they are. We're talking about Wall Street. We're talking about the healthcare industry. We're talking about the fossil fuel industry. We're talking about the pharmaceutical companies. We're talking about the military industrial complex, the private prison industry. These are really powerful guys. They have unlimited amounts of money and a lot of political muscle in Washington. And the only way I know that we defeat them is when millions of people at the grassroots level 
stand up and fight back and demand a government and an economy that works for all of us, not just the 1%. So let me thank the 1 million people who have already signed on. And let me ask those of you who haven't signed on, come on board. This is going to be an historic campaign, and we are going to make history. So thank you all very much. Talk to you soon. That is huge. One million grassroots volunteers, people in every single congressional district. That makes Bernie Sanders a formidable candidate. So make no mistake about it, he is the front runner. He's the one to beat. But with that being said, he's still kind of an underdog because since the establishment, collectively, the media, political elites see what he's doing, they're going to work even harder to crush him. And there are comments I've seen, you know, just from various Reddit posts and on Twitter of people saying maybe it's the case that since Joe Biden is polling the highest among all of the other corporate Democrats, you know, the establishment just collectively gets behind him in order to stop Bernie. I kind of find that persuasive. But at the same time, Joe Biden is such a horrible candidate that I can't really see him getting as big of a boost as Bernie. It's very clear he's probably going to run, and I expect him to kind of get a boost. But after that, I really kind of feel as if it will likely be the case that Joe Biden just goes downhill after he announces. But I mean, we'll have to see. Um, But by and large, the fact that he is such a force in the beginning of the race That just proves to us that we can't become complacent. We have to work that much harder because they're going to be that much more afraid and consequentially, they're going to try to do what they can. I mean, we're already seeing nonstop smears and hit pieces in the media. Um, Ex-Clinton staffers being quoted attacking him for taking private jets in order to attack his credibility directly to say that he's not a man of the people and maybe he's more elitist than he's leading on. You see Politico and Fox News trying to use these arguments that, well, you know, you can't you can't possibly be in favor of stopping climate change if you are taking private jets around the country. We're going to see everything to downplay Bernie Sanders. We're going to see attacks and smears on Bernie Sanders. But understand, whenever they go low, as uh, I think a meme said on Twitter, uh, we go knock on doors. That's what we have to do. We have to work that much harder. So, This is phenomenal news, and when I tell you this news, I want to stress that I am not telling you that we don't have to work hard. We have to work our asses off. The victory isn't just going to come to us. So we have to work hard, but at the same time, acknowledge that we actually have a chance this time. Bernie Sanders can win not just the Democratic Party primary, he can win the White House. And that's when the work will really begin. But first, we have to make sure he gets elected. And what we're seeing are really good signs. So I am thoroughly impressed by Bernie Sanders. He outperformed my expectations. And I really hope that the momentum continues. And I am anxious to see how he performs at debates. It's clear that he is really tightening his message, making it more concise, more clear, and I'm excited. So um, let's do this. I'm feeling the burn, and I know that you guys are too. 
So I wanted to give you guys my initial impressions after watching CNN's Town Hall with Bernie Sanders. I'm not going to play any clips for you in this segment, but I may follow up with another video where we kind of go into some of the specifics. But overall, I think that the Town Hall was great for Bernie Sanders. Any candidate who can basically get an hour worth of primetime advertising, essentially, um, that's going to be great for them. And I think that this was overall really great for Bernie Sanders. I would love to see town halls with other candidates, primarily Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang would be fantastic, Elizabeth Warren. Um, and just to be fair, give each candidate their own town hall. I said this with Howard Schultz and the Amy Klobuchar, otherwise known as Amy Cloudbuchar town halls, and I'll say it with Bernie Sanders. You know, just because my favorite candidate got a town hall doesn't mean that I'm satisfied. Give all the candidates a town hall. Let's just be fair here. Let them all get the name out. Let's make it fair. So with that being said, overall, I think that Bernie Sanders, he did a really good job. Um, I think that there were areas where he really shined and there were some areas where I was actually a little bit disappointed and he left room for improvement. So for example, on the question of Venezuela, hated the framing of that question. I hated the framing of a lot of questions, to be clear, but I don't like the framing of that question. However, I do think that Bernie Sanders answered pretty sufficiently. He gave, I think, a satisfactory answer. I have a video coming out with Bernie Sanders on Venezuela where it's clear that what he's doing now is walking a fine line where he's trying to appease progressives and the establishment at the same time, or really not appease. He's trying not to piss anyone off. But I mean, on this subject, it's a landmine. So what you've got to do is you, you've just got to go head first and do what's right, say what's right. So I think that he answered okay here. I don't really have anything negative to say about his answer. When it comes to the question as to whether or not he's to blame for Hillary Clinton, I don't like the question and I reject the premise of the question and I'm so glad that Bernie Sanders started off by saying that. We had somebody essentially create what is a false dichotomy in framing a question about the polarization of American politics where you have the Republican Party moving to the right and Democrats moving to the left. This is incorrect. This is that individual misconceptualizing what's happening because even if that person was correct to identify the fact that republicans are moving to the right democrats by and large they're not moving to the left there are some individuals within the party namely kamala harris elizabeth warren cory booker who are copying bernie sanders platform and that may give you the appearance that you know it might be the fact that they're moving to the left but overall they're actually moving to the right on economic policy you know they haven't really budged most of them have embraced you know a living wage a 15 dollar minimum wage which is good but when you look at foreign policy they're moving to the right when you look at healthcare they're not really moving at all they're saying that healthcare is a right they're advocating for universal healthcare but that doesn't mean single payer that doesn't mean medicare for all so it's incorrect to say that you know both parties are moving in opposite directions both parties are shifting to the right and they're both simultaneously moving away from public opinion where you have 70% support for policies like medicare for all including 
majority support for um, Medicare for All among Republicans. You have majority support for a federal jobs guarantee, majority support for a Green New Deal. So it's not that both parties are moving, you know, to the left and or to the right. It's that they're both moving away from the American people. So I think that Bernie Sanders did a sufficient job of explaining that. He could have been a little bit more clear in talking just, you know, straight up numbers. 70% of Americans want Medicare for All. So the average voter is not in the middle. The average voter is actually where progressives are. So I would have liked a little bit more clarity here because that is a huge misconception in politics. And really, that person, you know, I can't be too hard on her because that's essentially what the consensus is in D.C., um, so other issues he talked about. Let's see. He endorsed the idea of D.C. becoming a state. That's great. I would love to see what he has to say about other, you know, U.S. territories, Puerto Rico, Guam, because I would love for him to endorse statehood there or more specifically endorse whatever the people there want, you know, support the idea of referendums in these areas to join the United States. Um Additionally, one area where I really thought he just blew it out of the park was uh, Big Pharma, taking on Big Pharma. It's always been really a strong suit for Bernie Sanders, and he did a phenomenal job in this area as well. So I talked about the good. For the most part, Bernie Sanders, I think he did a good job. One area where I was not happy with his response was reparations. Um, he should have expected this question to come up because you do have some 2020 candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, saying the word reparations. And it's important because black activists have been trying for a long time to have reparations be part of the national discussion. And for good reason. If you think about what happened in World War II, we put Japanese Americans in internment camps. And what did we do? We gave them reparations. In fact, under Ronald Reagan in 1988, he's actually the one that gave them reparations, and they were compensated $20,000 each. So Bernie Sanders was right here in calling into question what Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris mean when they use the word reparations, because it seems to me as if Elizabeth Warren supports the same exact thing that Bernie Sanders supports, but she's instead just labeling her plan reparations, where Bernie Sanders is not calling it reparations. Now, additionally, Kamala Harris has also called for reparations, but she hasn't really given any specific details. So these other Democratic contenders are given credit for supporting reparations when they haven't actually stated what they mean by reparations. Do you mean just investment in the community, or do you actually mean cash payments. Now, what Bernie Sanders should have done is called on Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris to clarify and say, look, if they actually do support reparations, does that mean that they support amending the Civil Liberties Act to include descendants of slaves? Or do they simply mean they don't support a direct payment to American descendants of slaves and would rather just invest money into black communities as a form of reparations? They need to clarify. And furthermore, he should have stated, look, if, if you truly support reparations, then they should have supported John Conyers legislation that he introduced every single year that actually called on the American government to study. It would have passed a bill 
that aimed to study the effect of slavery on black Americans and descendants of slaves and, you know, what impact reparations would have. He should have asked them whether or not they supported that and why they didn't speak out on it. And if this is just the ploy from them to get votes, I think there's a lot of clarification that's needed. And there's a fundamental lack of nuance when it comes to this issue here. But by and large, I wish that Bernie Sanders prepared for this question and would have been a little bit more um, concise here because, you know, on one hand, it's not fair for him to only get criticized for not supporting reparations if everybody else doesn't technically support it, but they're being credited with it when they pretty much support the same thing. So I personally support reparations and I hope that Bernie comes on board, but you need to be clear. Do you support actual direct payments to American descendants of slaves or just investing in communities? And if you do support real reparations for descendants of slaves, then why haven't you introduced a Senate version as a companion to John Conyers' House bill. I mean, it's convenient to support reparations now during an election and make a lot of promises, but if you don't actually support it, then it's kind of disingenuous to say you do without having a real tangible plan to back it up. So Bernie Sanders should have said this and should have said that really they're proposing something that's basically the same as my plan. So this is one of the areas where I really hope to see some significant improvement from Bernie. I think he's come a long way when it comes to Israel-Palestine. There's still a huge area there where um, there's there's area for opportunity, is what I'll say, to put it nicely. Um, I wish he'd unequivocally say, I support abolishing ICE. So there's areas of improvement for Bernie Sanders, and what I hope to see over the course of this very long campaign season, frankly, is just growth from Bernie in these issues. He's really nailed it when it comes to talking about economic issues and the economic disparities when it comes to black versus white and whatnot. But he's got to pin these things down because he's going to be hit by the establishment. He's going to be hit by grassroots supporters who are expecting a really nuanced, you know, conversation about these issues. And so I really hope that he actually tries to do better here. Um, for people who see that he's being criticized because of this, don't be angry. Listen to the criticisms. Because the thing about Bernie Sanders is that he actually does hear criticism and he tries to grow based off of our criticisms. So I'm never going to hold back if Bernie Sanders does something that I don't necessarily like or agree with. Because he listens. And we need him to listen. We need to, him to hear our criticisms so he improves as a candidate. But overall, just to kind of step back and put the entire town hall into perspective, I think it, it was good overall. It was helping him get the message out. Um, and I just, I hope to see other town halls with more candidates. So you may see another video, a follow-up where I just kind of go into the specifics, but by and large, you know, I really enjoyed watching this. It was the best town hall so far. And that's all I'll say. I want to take some time now to get into the specifics of the Bernie Sanders Town Hall on CNN with Wolf Blitzer, and the more that I watch these clips back in preparation for this segment, the more encouraged I feel because it's evident to me that Bernie Sanders has really honed his craft. He has become a lot more effective at communicating a progressive message that is clear, it's concise, and I think that everything he's saying is going to resonate. So I think that if you were already a Bernie Sanders supporter, you're going to love everything he had to say. But also, I think that if you are on the fence about Bernie Sanders, if you saw this town hall, then I really do feel as if there was a 
possibility that he could have convinced you. Now, I don't necessarily know that that's definitely the case, but when you look at some of these reports about how 40% of Bernie Sanders' campaign contributors are new supporters, then I've got to think that he really is building a bigger coalition and his support base is more broad than it's ever been. So I want to get to some of the specifics here, but before we do that, I've got to point out just how disingenuous CNN is because the whole point of these town hall events is for average Americans to ask their questions to potential presidents. Now, we did not get that because CNN decided to stack this town hall event with consultants, lobbyists, Democratic Party operatives. So, for example, you had an intern at the lobbying firm DC Cassidy and Associates ask him a question. You had the chair of the Baltimore Democratic Party ask him a question, a member of Maryland's Democratic Campaign Committee ask him a question, a student who also works at a DC consulting firm ask him a question, a Maryland Democratic Party operative ask him a question, someone whose aunt used to work for Bill Clinton ask him a question, another DC consultant slash PR firm executive ask him a question. Now, it's not necessarily the case that all of these people were out to get Bernie Sanders because I think for the most part their questions were perfectly reasonable, even though the framing on some of them was problematic in my view. But the point is that you can't be disingenuous and not disclose the fact that these are not just average Americans. These are individuals who are actually entrenched in politics in some way, shape, or form. So the fact that CNN did not disclose that is exactly why people don't trust the mainstream media. And when you take into consideration the fact that they recently just hired Sarah Isger, a GOP operative who pledged her loyalty to Donald Trump to oversee 2020 campaign coverage, I mean, you've got to question what CNN is doing because what little credibility they had left, if you even want to argue that they had any whatsoever, it's all diminishing rapidly. So all that I'm asking is for CNN to disclose who these people actually are and disclose their title that's most relevant that will actually supply us with the context we need to understand a little bit about them and maybe preconceived biases that they may have when asking a question. Now, some of them asked softball questions to Bernie, in my view. Some of them asked really biased hard questions. But the point is that we know. So with that being said, I want to get into some clips and I'm just going to play a couple of really short clips to start that I really enjoy. So first of all, when it comes to Bernie Sanders and how he would fare in a debate against Donald Trump and namely what his strategy would be, this is what he had to say. If you're the uh, Democratic presidential nominee and you're on the debate stage with President Trump, how will you engage with him? Well, uh, we'll bring a lie detector along. <laughs> And every time he lies, it goes beep. That would be the first thing. Now, I absolutely love that answer. And to be clear, he did go more in depth and gave more than just a facetious answer. But I like that he said that there because he's showing his personality more. And also, that line actually got quite a bit of play in mainstream media. So that was great. Another really highlight moment of um, the town hall for me was when he said this. If your question is, am I going to demand that the wealthy and large corporations start paying their fair share of taxes. Damn right, I will. All right? Couldn't be happier about that, and I like that he's just saying it. Damn right, 
It's not even a question. I wish other candidates would be more clear when they're talking about taxes because they try to tap dance around this issue because they don't want to offend potential high dollar donors. But look, if you're funded entirely by the grassroots and by the people, you don't have to pretend. You could just say, damn right, we're going to raise taxes on the rich. That was music to my ears. Now, additionally, when it comes to diplomacy and whether or not he approves of Donald Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un, I loved his answer here because he did a passionate plea in favor of diplomacy and in favor of getting people to see why this is important. The idea of going and meeting face to face with your adversaries is a good idea. I would like the president of the United States to bring Iran and Saudi Arabia together, to bring the Palestinians and the Israelis together. All right. I don't really care about this next thing that he's going to be asked about, but I do think it's important just for purposes of getting the Democratic Party off of his back. This is what he said in response to a question about whether or not he'd release his tax returns. Will you release 10 years of your tax returns? As you know, Elizabeth Warren has decided to do that. Yes. Now, to be clear, we've seen some of Bernie Sanders' tax returns, and they are just as boring as he says they are. So understand that when Democratic Party loyalists berate Bernie for not releasing his tax returns, what they're trying to do is suggest to you that there's something maybe suspect there. Maybe we should be worried about what's in Bernie Sanders' tax returns. And I agree that Bernie Sanders should release his tax returns. All presidential candidates should. But the reason why Bernie Sanders is different than Donald Trump, and the reason why you shouldn't conflate the two is because the reason why we want to see what's in Donald Trump's tax returns is specifically because he claims to be a billionaire. So we need to see what's in his tax returns. We need to see if there's any business dealings or companies in there that may pose a conflict of interest. And when it comes to Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party demanding to see what's in his taxes, this is nothing more than a tactic. But I am glad that he's finally releasing them to just silence his critics once and for all when it comes to this issue. Now, I want to get into some of the more controversial moments because he was asked about sexual harassment allegations on his campaign. I thought his answer was absolutely perfect. I was very upset to learn what I learned. Uh, when I ran for re-election in Vermont in 2018, we instituted, I think, maybe the strongest protocols against sexual harassment, and that will be the protocols we bring into the 2020 presidential election. Every employee of mine in this campaign will get significant amounts of training to understand what sexual harassment is about. Anybody who feels harassed will have an independent uh, entity to speak to outside of the campaign. And we have hired some of the best people in the country to help us on this issue. We take this issue very, very seriously. How, how has it affected you personally knowing what happened? It was very painful. Very painful. So... To me, that was a virtually perfect answer because he's not just saying this was wrong, but he's also explaining how he's taking really demonstrable steps to actually stop any types of sexual harassment and to make sure that individuals who are on his campaign actually have a, some type of independent firm or organization that they can take their grievances to. That's incredibly important. However, the problem with this question is that What's not being stated here, the subtext of all of this is that Bernie Sanders is being held to a higher standard than other candidates. Because, first of all, just about a month or two ago, Kamala Harris had a top aide resign due to sexual harassment allegations. Zero questions 
at her town hall, and really nobody in mainstream media talking about that. However, when it comes to Bernie Sanders and sexual harassment that transpired that he was unaware of, all of a sudden this is a huge issue when we all know that sexual harassment isn't a Bernie problem. It's an America problem that we all need to collectively address as a nation. But for some reason, Bernie Sanders is uniquely culpable here, and I find that incredibly frustrating because if you're going to claim that someone who's running for a particular political office is culpable for what happens under them, and they are to some extent, then you also have to hold other candidates to that same standard. But they're uniquely targeting Bernie Sanders here, and I find that so frustrating that nobody's calling this out. So another issue is um, when it comes to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and allegations that he somehow helped deliver Trump a victory by not helping Hillary Clinton. He took this question head on. He also responded to allegations that he's racially insensitive and isn't crafting a message that's inclusive of people of color. Take a look. Many feel you undermined Secretary Clinton after her nomination by not showing enough support, and which contributed to President Trump being elected. Along with that, many also feel that you are at times racially insensitive and by virtue of your background don't reflect their experience enough. How do you address these concerns and what's your approach to winning their votes? Well, first of all, I reject the first premise that you made. I knock my brains out. In fact, I just saw a letter today from Hillary Clinton, which said, thank you, Bernie, for working so hard in my election. All right. We went to state after state. I think we had 35, 40 rallies in all of the battleground states. So I do not accept for one moment that I did not do everything that I could. And then people say, well, you know, some of your supporters voted for Trump. True. But some of Hillary's supporters in 2008 voted for McCain. That's the reality. More of those did that than voted for me. Now, on the second point, okay, we ended up winning among younger people more votes from young African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, Native Americans than Clinton and Trump combined. All right. Furthermore, if you look at the polling out there, we're doing quite well with the African-American community. But let me just raise an issue here. Maybe I haven't been as strong on this issue as I should be. I talk about the fact that we have a nation of massive inequality. Okay, And I believe that. I think that's the most important issue we can talk about. But within that inequality, we have another inequality. And that is racial disparity. And it's important that everybody understands that. That means that the wealth gap between a white family and a black family is 10 to 1. If you are a black mother, the likelihood is that you, are, you, you will have a baby that will die. Your infant mortality rate two and a half times higher than a white mother. If you are a black businessman, I remember talking to a fellow in Milwaukee, black businessman, said, Bernie, I can't get a loan from the bank. And his business is pretty good because of redlining. Black kids are leaving college more deeply in debt than white kids. So we have an enormous amount of disparity in wealth, in education, in health that must be addressed. And I will work as hard as I can, number one, to have a cabinet that reflects what America is, and number two, to do everything that I can in every way to end all forms of racism in this country. So in my opinion, I think that that was an impeccable answer. The 
rejection of the premise that he helped Hillary Clinton lose and Donald Trump win, it's just absurd on its face. He traveled across the country, going to states that Hillary Clinton wouldn't set foot in, and he attended 39 overall campaign events events for Hillary Clinton. So to suggest here that after campaigning his ass off for Hillary Clinton, after the DNC put their thumb on the scale for her, I mean, it's just egregious. Now, when it comes to whether or not his message is inclusive of the African-American community and marginalized minorities, I think he did a sufficient job here, although we have to see what, you know, people from the community say. But the thing that is interesting is that it's very clear when you look at numbers that Bernie Sanders does have a message that isn't just tailored to appeal to white working class voters. It appeals to everyone because it is inclusive of everyone. And back in 2016, sure, it's the case that when you look at, you know, the results from the South Carolina primary, Hillary Clinton got more support among black voters overall. However, when you dive a little bit deeper, you'll see that Bernie Sanders actually won more with millennials of all colors, ethnicities, orientations, he's just more popular among millennials, whereas Hillary Clinton appealed to older people, including mostly older black voters. And second of all, another thing that I want to say that I'm kind of forgetting right now, um, <laughs> um, what the fuck was I going to say? When you look at public opinion polls, you can see now that he actually has the highest level of support from African Americans and from women. So, now that his name recognition has increased exponentially, you can see that what was that narrative back in 2016 is no longer going to be persuasive to the general public. So moving past the criticisms, I want to touch on what were my favorite moments of the debate. And he was asked to explain why socialism is preferable to capitalism. Um, the answer here was just it was phenomenal for a number of reasons. And I'll tell you why once you see the clip. Senator Sanders, uh, can you make a simple, persuasive case as to why socialism is preferable to capitalism? Democratic socialism, right? Yes. Okay. Let's, let me uh, tell you what I mean by that so we're clear. Right now, we have a nation which prides itself on a lot of political rights. In other words, under the Constitution, thank God you have freedom of speech. Media can do its thing, even though... Trump calls you an enemy of the people. How does that feel to be an enemy? That's another story. All right. <laughs> I won't question Wolf. Uh, you don't think we are, though? No, I don't. I okay. certainly do not. Uh, so we have political right, freedom of religion. And all of that is enormously important. But you know what we don't have? We don't have guarantees regarding economic rights. And way back in 1944, in a little known, a little publicized, State of the Union speech, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said something, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, you know, when we talk about human freedom and rights, we've got to understand that everybody needs a decent paying job, that people need health care, that people need education. And all over the world, these ideas are taking place. You go to countries in Scandinavia, of course, health care is a right. Higher education is free. They have strong uh, preschool uh, programs. They make sure that their elderly folks can retire in dignity. These are not radical ideas. So what democratic socialism means to me is having in a civilized society the understanding that we can 
make sure that all of our people live in security and in dignity. Healthcare is a human right. All people should have healthcare. You can't get ahead in this country, in this world, unless you have a decent education. We have got to, as a right, end the kinds of discrimination, the racism and the sexism and the homophobia that exist. So to me, when I talk about democratic socialism, what I talk about are human rights and economic rights. Senator, uh, President Trump said in a State of the Union address, and I'm quoting him now, America, this is the president, America will never be a socialist country. Will that hold true if you're elected president? If I am elected president, we will have a nation in which all people have health care as a right, whether Trump likes it or not. We are going to make public colleges and universities tuition free. We are going to raise the minimum wage to, uh, to a living wage of at least 15 bucks an hour. And whether Trump likes it or not, when I talk about human rights, you know what that also means? It means that our kids and grandchildren have the human right to grow up in a planet that is healthy and habitable. So that was fantastic to me. But to be crystal clear here, Bernie Sanders is technically not a democratic socialist. He is more of a social democrat in actuality, but really what matters most is the policies that are associated with the ideology, not the title he's giving to himself. And he listed off all of the things that should be guaranteed to citizens, and I really feel as if the way he explains it will resonate with the American people. My only suggestion to Bernie would be, since this is still something that's relatively new in political discourse, really attach it to something that's tangible. Americans know what Social Security is and how much they love it. They also know about Medicare and know how much they love it. So attach it to something that's tangible that they can see so that way it feels more familiar to them and less scary because when you throw around words like socialism, it's going to scare people who aren't politically savvy, who don't really know what these terms mean. So if you attach to something that's familiar with them that they know about, then I think that you're going to help drive the point home a lot better. Um, but I mean, for the most part, everything he said there was phenomenal. And I do think that this is going to resonate with people. So by and large, I was thoroughly impressed. And I think that overall, even if I have some issues with CNN and them being disingenuous, this only could help Bernie Sanders. Um, and I think that his performance is, um, it was just amazing. He really is a much better orator now than he was back in 2016. And you can just kind of see it in his face. Bernie Sanders is energized now. He has this glow about him because he feels as if he's no longer running a candidacy and a campaign that's a long shot. He actually could take this whole thing all the way to the White House. So you see that in his face. You see that glimmer, that spark. And it really comes across in the way he talks about these policies with excitement, with, you know, this genuine concern for the American people. So I loved it. Um, the one thing that I want to leave you with is probably my favorite part. He did talk about Medicare for All and clarified, and he was asked by Wolf Blitzer, you know, well, would you allow someone to keep the insurance that they're getting from their employer currently? And Bernie Sanders said, look, people 
they don't care about their insurance. They care about keeping their doctor. And yes, the only thing that would change is instead of having a Blue Cross Blue Shield card, you'd have a Medicare card. So he explained that. The clip is relatively long, so I'm not going to play that after playing all these other long clips. But I will leave you with his take on climate change because this was probably my favorite part of the entire town hall. And he just blew it out of the park. And he really made me believe that when he gets elected, He's not just going to put climate change on the back burner. He actually will take substantial action. So I'll leave you with Bernie talking about why we need to take action to save the planet. You know, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you were moderating it. Um, well, I don't know if it was you or CBS, I can't remember. And somebody asked me, they said, what is the major national security issue facing this country? And you know what I said? I said climate change. And people laughed. Wasn't that funny? Well, people are not laughing now. Because they have read the scientific reports and they know that if we don't get our act together in the next 12 years or so, there's going to be irreparable damage. Mm -hmm. So let me lay it out on the line. We are going to have to not only take on Trump and his deniers, but we are going to have to take on the power of the fossil fuel industry. That is the coal companies and the oil companies and the gas companies. And we are going to have to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Now, the good news is, is that we know how to do that. The technology is there, and that technology will only improve. And here's the other good news when we make that transformation. We're going to create millions of good-paying jobs, weatherizing our homes, changing our transportation system, moving aggressively into wind and solar, and other sustainable energies. But this, to me, is an existential crisis that impacts not just you and me and our generation, but our kids and our grandchildren. And we must accept the moral responsibility of leaving these kids, future generations, a planet that is healthy and habitable. And I will do everything I can to have the United States lead the rest of the world. We can't do it alone. But we can bring India and China and Russia, countries all over the world, together in the fight to transform our energy system and save this planet. With each new day brings a brand new hatchet job hit piece from Politico. And today is no different because we have this gem by Daniel Lipman, who reports ex-Clinton staffers slam Sanders over private jet flights. Now, certainly, it's true that in this article, ex-Clinton staffers will, in fact, slam Bernie Sanders over his private jet flights when he campaigned for Hillary Clinton back in 2016. However, what this article doesn't tell you What's missing here is that Daniel Lipman himself also slams Bernie Sanders over private jet flights because, well, I mean, if you support climate change, then how dare you ride in an airplane? Now, in case you missed it, just in December, I was making fun of Fox News, Steve Ducey, Tucker Carlson for using the same right-wing argument against Bernie Sanders, but now you have a Politico, quote, journalist saying the same thing. Well, if you participate in society, then you can't be serious about climate change. Actually, individual decision-making isn't going to be what saves the planet. 
you have to do what's needed at the government level, not at the individual level. So here's what Lippman states. In his campaign launch video last week, Bernie Sanders singled out the fossil fuel industry for criticism, listing it among the special interests he planned to take on. But in the final months of his 2016 campaign, Sanders repeatedly requested and received the use of a carbon-spewing private jet for himself and his traveling staff when he served as a surrogate campaigner for Hillary Clinton. In the two years following the presidential election, Sanders continued his frequent private jet travel, spending at least $342,000 on the flights, increased scrutiny of his travel practices, which are at odds with his positions on wealth inequality and climate change, are among the challenges Sanders will face as he makes his second White House run. Is that so? <laughs> are you honestly trying to convince us that Bernie Sanders has to take a car or a train or whatever? I mean, look, if you want to get the message out there and you want to travel to multiple states, 11 states in the span of a week, for example, as was the case in 2016 when he was campaigning for Hillary Clinton, then it's just a lot more efficient to travel via private jet. And if you're a politician, this is not something that's uncommon, but like a lot of critiques of Bernie Sanders, they'll hold him to a different standard. Now, I get that he talks about wealth inequality, and so, you know, the optics may be bad. It's elitist to fly in a private jet, except he's running to be the president, and he was campaigning for someone who was running for president. So, to criticize him here for this, it seems kind of fishy. It seems like you have an agenda. Because Bernie Sanders flies commercial, when he doesn't need to be in 20 different places in the span of a week. But because he chose to use a private jet, you're trying to basically point at him and say, gotcha, which is the same thing the right-wing propaganda outlet Fox News did to him. So congratulations, Politico, for engaging in Fox News' level of political discourse. This is what gutter politics looks like, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I want to get to the crux of this article here, where he talks about how Clinton staffers were irritated that Bernie Sanders asked to fly in a private jet. And this is just, it shows how smug and awful Hillary Clinton's team was. Bernie Sanders also faces another hurdle, hard feelings that remain to this day after the contentious 2016 Democratic primary. Many in the party continue to believe the Vermont senator played a role in contributing to Clinton's defeat in November because of his criticisms of her prior to the general election and his refusal to concede earlier when it appeared he had little mathematical chance of securing the party nomination. And they are eager to point out Sanders flaws and examples of what they perceive to be examples of hypocrisy now that the one-time underdog rates as one of the frontrunners in the crowded democratic field. Quote, I'm not shocked that while thousands of volunteers braved the heat and cold to knock on doors until their fingers bled in a desperate effort to stop Donald Trump, his royal majesty, King Bernie Sanders, would only deign to leave his plush DC office or his brand new second home on the lake if he was flown around on a cushy private jet like a billionaire master of the universe, said Zach Petkanis, who was the director of rapid response for the Clinton campaign. Seriously, it's Bernie Sanders who is his royal majesty, it's not Hillary Clinton 
who was her royal majesty, who had the DNC rigged the election against Bernie Sanders, and then he was forced to campaign for her because he cares so much about stopping Donald Trump from winning. But he's your royal majesty? <laughs> Makes sense. So they report that what Sanders' use of private jets ultimately cost the Clinton-Cain campaign was about $100,000. Now, there was supposedly this understanding that when he would begin campaigning for her and acting as a surrogate that he would fly commercial. However, there were instances during the campaign where he had to appear at multiple campaign stops across numerous states in a short span of time. So the reason why he requested a private jet was to be more efficient, to bypass TSA and to just get there and actually help Hillary Clinton's failing campaign beat Donald Trump. But they still attack him for it after everything he did and after everything that was done to him, which is absurd to me. So I don't even feel angry when I read this article. I just feel pity because these people are clearly just, they're angry and they're just butthurt at the fact that Hillary Clinton couldn't win an election that was a layup. And you've got to understand that when you look at the tight schedule and the 39 different campaign events that Bernie Sanders attended while acting as a surrogate for Clinton, I mean, it was basically physically impossible to make it to all of the campaign events that she needed him to be at. So he requested a private jet to help her, not because, oh, I'm, I'm just too good for that, because we see him flying commercial all the time. There are Reddit posts with Bernie Sanders in coach. So give me a break. I mean, nobody's going to be convinced that Bernie Sanders is elitist because he's still the same Bernie. He's still making the case for the American people. And Bernie's campaign responded to this saying that he never insisted on having a private plane just for the sake of having a private plane. It was only requested when it was needed specifically to meet tight deadlines, nothing else. Now, what's hilarious to me is that it really shows how out of touch Hillary Clinton is when you look at one fact in this particular article. So, she foot the bill for celebrities like Jay-Z, Beyonce, Katy Perry to all fly private. However, Bernie Sanders is who she took an issue with. Now, they'll say, well, you know, we just, we foot the bill for celebrities, but any political uh, surrogates, we made them fly commercial. Except Bernie Sanders at that point in time was a celebrity. He was your most important surrogate because he had the millennial vote. You didn't. So Bernie was more important than celebrities, but they're not complaining about paying for Katy Perry or Jay-Z's private jet. They're complaining about Bernie Sanders. This is part of the reason why Hillary Clinton ran such a horrible campaign. She emphasized the importance, or really she prioritized celebrities over Bernie Sanders. Unbelievable. Now, Michael Briggs, who was Bernie Sanders' campaign spokesman at the time, responded to this article and what he said, um, pretty much I was living for it. Quote, you can see why she's one of the most disliked politicians in America. She's not nice. Her people are not nice, he said. Sanders busted his tail to fly all over the country to talk about why it made sense to elect Hillary Clinton and the thanks we get is this kind of petty, stupid sniping a couple of years after the fact. It doesn't make me feel good to feel this way, but they're some of the biggest assholes in American politics, he added. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because they still haven't really taken responsibility for their horrible campaign that they ran. Because they have so much hubris 
that they can't possibly believe that they did anything wrong and that it has to be Russia or Bernie or everyone else to blame, but not them. Even if they didn't go to Wisconsin, if Hillary didn't set foot in Wisconsin, can't be Hillary, it can't be her campaign team, and they're incompetent, it's got to be someone else. So, to kind of step back and put this entire article into context, this is a hatchet job against Bernie Sanders, not just because it was clear that this author was fishing for details that he could find from obviously bitter Clinton people to attack Bernie Sanders with, but he's also joining in with the course of attacks that are being lobbed against him by the Clinton people by using a right-wing argument. And if you don't believe me, this is what Fox News and Steve Ducey uh, and also Tucker Carlson were saying about Bernie Sanders just last year when he was talking about climate change. Okay, uh, turns out Sanders is so concerned about climate change that he spent nearly $300,000 in nine days flying around on private jets. And if Bernie Sanders really believes what he's saying, why is he flying on private planes? I mean, I'm, it's a sincere question. Ha! Got him! So understand that Politico's getting so desperate that they're now publishing pieces that are comparable to hatchet jobs that you'd see on Fox News, literally. Embarrassing. And keep doing this, Politico, because you're only making us see your outlet for what it really is. An organization that is just there to serve the establishment and not present us the facts as they come. You have an agenda that you're trying to promote, and we're seeing that now more so than ever. We already saw it, but it's just crystal clear now, Politico, so thank you. Tucker Carlson of Fox News often tries to present himself as the reasonable host on Fox News. You know, he's a more reasonable conservative who will throw populists a bone once in a while. So what he tries to do is, rather than just outright denying climate change, he has to put forward these phony, frankly nonsensical arguments to discredit people who are talking about climate change the most. And he's trying to promote this idea that if you drive a car, if you ride in airplanes, and if you essentially consume in any way, shape, or form that contributes to greenhouse gases being emitted more so than what is natural, then you are clearly a hypocrite. That's the argument that he's making, but thankfully, someone on his program actually called him on his bullshit, and you're going to watch Tucker Carlson faceplant here, and it's going to be glorious. Of course he should spend the last few days of a campaign doing everything he can to fight no, for a Green New Deal. You and should reduce your in those own values. emissions. No, it's really simple. So you he should, should walk to work your own emissions. Should he walk from you Vermont live, to DC? Yes, yes. Should he walk from you Vermont to DC? Live by should, the you standards. just said yes. You just no, said yes, you, you should, should walk from Vermont the, to DC? That shows I'm the saying BS that argument that you just described. Okay. Taking you know a what car, you're doing? You are making excuses because all you want is power. I've you're exactly you make the kind of person arguments. who would... Tucker, no, I've seen no, no. you make better what arguments you're doing than saying is that he exposing, from Vermont You're to exposing the shallowness of your car, own arguments. Anybody who takes any this plane... This is idiotic. Is it idiotic? You just said he should he should walk from Vermont to D.C. Obviously, you don't believe right. that. Okay. Obviously, you don't believe I'm that. Sorry. He's not a hypocrite okay. for doing I'm gonna, that. He believes in tens right. of millions okay. of new jobs in the clean energy economy. This is What's this is idiotic. What you're saying, because look, you, you will just never said he should walk from Vermont to DC or your leaders. You just oh, said your dumb he should walk from Vermont more. to DC. I asked right. if he should walk. You said right. yes. Come on, not a real argument. You, you got me, Adam. You got me. You're a brilliant guy. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. it. We're gonna. Um, we have pictures apparently on the screen. 
Kim Jong-un's train uh, pulling in. <laughs> Cat got your tongue? <laughs> Please stop putting me in my place. We've got to go to break. Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Why are you suddenly trying to change the subject? You don't have anything else to say because you just made yourself look like an idiot, so you have to call your guest an idiot. This is idiotic what you're saying. Tucker, you just said that it's reasonable to expect Bernie Sanders to walk from Vermont to D.C., and you expect us to take you seriously? I mean, nobody should take anything Tucker Carlson says seriously, especially if he is doing white supremacy propaganda all the time on his show, fear-mongering about immigrants. He's just a loathsome human being, but he really is revealing here that he's also not very bright. This argument that you can't care about climate change and wanting to stop climate change if you fly in airplanes is the new how is evolution real argument if we still got monkeys? That's the new argument. That's the level of stupidity. It's only clever to people who are not that bright to begin with. And what Tucker and other shills on Fox News need to realize is that individual decisions will not stop climate catastrophe, especially considering the fact that 100 corporations are responsible for 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So if you want to stop climate change, sure, you can do what you can on the individual level, but individuals can only do so much. If all of us collectively agree to reduce our carbon footprint as individuals, that'd be fantastic, but it's still not going to stop a climate catastrophe because you have to change the system. Tucker Carlson, he probably knows this, but again, on Fox News, the goal is to do propaganda on behalf of the Republican Party and the puppet masters who pull the Republican Party's strings, their donors, oil and gas. So if you want to be considered reasonable in 2019 when it comes to climate change, you can't just outright deny climate change. You can't say it's cold outside. Climate change? Question mark. You actually have to be a little bit more clever. But this is what they're resorting to because they have nothing left. They've been backed into a corner, and now all that they can do is say, you're a hypocrite because you're flying in airplanes. Sorry, that's not going to work, fucker. I mean, Tucker, because individual actions will not stop climate catastrophe. So I hope that Tucker Carlson is able to sleep well at night after doing nonstop propaganda for Republicans, after pushing white supremacist propaganda Basically, on a daily basis, this is someone who is egregious, he's a bad human being, and I'm so glad that he finally had someone on his show that put him in his place, because this is someone who is nothing more than a fucking fraud, and nobody should trust Tucker Carlson, nobody should watch Tucker Carlson, and most importantly, nobody should take anything he has to say Seriously, because he may talk about economic populism, but understand that that's just a red herring. He may occasionally side with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when it comes to her wanting to take on Amazon. That's just a red herring, because once he pulls you in, 
Then it's going to be a bait and switch. He's going to try to convince you and sell you republicanism, conservatism, and white supremacy. And we have to be especially hypersensitive about frauds like this who present themselves as someone who is a serious actor when they're nothing more than a bad faith actor who wants to get you to think that what he's selling you isn't a load of shit. Everything he says is horseshit. Do not take him seriously and do not trust Tucker Carlson. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that what Donald Trump wants with regard to Venezuela is regime change because him, along with the warmongers in his cabinet, have been pushing vociferously for just that. And over the weekend, Mike Pence met with Juan Guaido and said that he can rely on the United States for uncompromising support. And when it comes to why they are interested in intervening militarily in Venezuela, well, as Andrew McCabe puts it, Donald Trump wants their oil. Yeah, the, pres <clears throat> the president's remarks of the room were along the lines of, I don't understand why we're not looking at Venezuela. Why are we not at war with Venezuela? They have all the oil and they're right on our back door. Now, I understand that that may not be persuasive, even if I do believe McCabe there, because it is hearsay. But if you need to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, then listen to no one other than National Security Advisor John Bolton tell Trish Reagan of Fox News that they're interested in jacking Venezuela's oil. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and, and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of the United States. We both have a lot at stake here making this come out the right way. So this is about their oil. They want Venezuela's oil and they're doing whatever they can to push for regime change there. Now, the big thing that they're currently doing is they're trying to get Maduro to accept aid. Now, what a lot of people are pointing out is that this may be nothing more than a ploy because if you offer Venezuela aid, expecting Maduro to reject that aid, then what do you do? You set up the situation where you are pushing for a conflict, where people in the country who are part of the opposition try to get the aid, and you have maybe, you know, a, a clash between the Maduro people and the Guaido people, and it's just a disaster situation. So essentially, it's a trap. By offering aid, you don't necessarily care about aid. It's a trap because let's be clear here. If Donald Trump cared about the Venezuelan people as he says he does, and he cares about humanitarian issues, then why hasn't he spoken out more forcefully about the Rohingya genocide that's going on in Myanmar? Why is he against ending support to Saudi Arabia as they carry out a genocide in Yemen currently? We know that this is nothing more than United States national interests and international hegemony and us trying to do what we want to do simply because we can. So this humanitarian aid is nothing more than a stunt. And over the last month, what we've seen from the United States is everything they could possibly throw at Venezuela in order to not just destabilize the regime, but ultimately lead to the military turning on Maduro, which essentially means he would lose his power. His reign would effectively be over at that point because their loyalty, the military's loyalty, is what's keeping him in power specifically. So the United States put sanctions on Venezuela and they've been trying to do everything they can to meddle in Venezuela's affairs in order to get Maduro out and their guy 
in. So we need to be savvy and acknowledge that this aid is not about humanitarianism. Donald Trump doesn't care that Venezuelans are starving and he really just wants to get them food. This is all part of a concerted effort to actually make sure that the U.S. coup in Venezuela is a success. And I think that Senator Chris Murphy surprisingly had a pretty astute take here. He says Democrats need to be careful about a potential trap being set by Trump et al. in Venezuela. Cheering humanitarian convoys sounds like the right thing to do, but what if it's not about the aid? What if the real agenda is laying a pretext for war? Follow my logic for a second. First, no secret Trump has been talking up war with Maduro since 2017 when he repeatedly asked McMaster for a plan to overthrow Maduro. New McCabe book confirms. Now, Trump says all options are on the table, and Rubio objects to Senate resolution that forbids war. I want aid to get to Venezuelans, but let's be honest, Venezuela didn't just lurch into humanitarian crisis. The aid is being sent there now as part of a regime change strategy. Many are hoping that it will be the match that lights a civil war against Maduro. Senator Rubio rushed to tweet out reports today of Maduro allies firing into Colombian territory, warning that the United States will help Colombia confront any aggression against them. Venezuela ordered Colombian diplomats out in 24 hours, ramping up the crisis. Maduro is evil and the U.S. should pursue a strategy to undermine him and prompt new elections. No one can defend what he has done to Venezuela, but it's quite a different thing for the U.S. to incite a civil war with no real plan for how it ends. Sound familiar? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, go look up the 1947 Rio Treaty. It's a Western Hemisphere Mutual Defense Treaty and may not require a war declaration if Trump is legitimately coming to the defense of Colombia. Don't think the Venezuela hawks don't know this. Now, he is flat out wrong to suggest that the United States should pursue a strategy to undermine Maduro because we need to just stop meddling in Venezuela's affairs. Full stop. Just stop. Back out. Don't even pay any attention to what they're doing. You're only going to make matters worse. But with that being said, his call for caution is incredibly important because he's right to be cautious here. And everything that's currently happening indicates that Donald Trump and the warmongers in his administration want war with Venezuela. And they've been trying to bait Maduro into a military conflict. Once they basically ordered the U.S. diplomats to leave Venezuela, once they recognized Guaido as the leader, well, what happened? They were basically saber-rattling against Venezuela saying, oh, well, let's see, if they if they hurt our guys, if they hurt U.S. citizens there, then there's going to be an issue. All things are on the table. And then you have Marco Rubio tweeting out pictures of Gaddafi to essentially threaten and intimidate Maduro. And I mean, look, we, we don't even have to entertain this idea that Trump and his cronies care about the Venezuelan people because they don't. So to even entertain it, is preposterous. We know what they want. They want to get in Venezuela for a regime change agenda to get a puppet, Guaido, in who will allow them access to their resources. That's what this is about, simply put. So this call to to basically get Maduro to accept U.S. aid, it's nothing more than a red herring. It's a trap. Now, the problem is when it comes to 2020 presidential candidates, most of them are falling into that trap. Tulsi Gabbard thus far has not. However, Bernie Sanders 
has, and he tweeted this out, quote, the people of Venezuela are enduring a serious humanitarian crisis. The Maduro government must put the needs of its people first, allow humanitarian aid into the country, and refrain from violence against protesters. Now, I responded saying, this is an incredibly disappointing response from you, Bernie. Don't play into the hands of warmongers like Elliot Abrams and Donald Trump. You should know better than this. And I am baffled that he doesn't seem to know better than this. And there were a lot of progressives who were furious at Bernie after he said this. And rightfully so, because look, it's one thing to not advocate for regime change wars, but you do have to be hypersensitive to whatever propaganda that the warmongers are going to throw at you. And now it's humanitarian aid. What, you're against humanitarian aid going to Venezuelans? Do you want their people to starve? This isn't about humanitarian aid. This is about Donald Trump trying to push his regime change agenda. And for whatever reason, Bernie Sanders just kind of seems to have a blind spot here. So he pissed off a lot of progressives, but understand here, what Bernie Sanders is clearly doing is trying to walk a fine line in order to not piss anyone off. And what he said in an interview with Jorge Ramos was better. I like what he said there better than his tweet, but he managed to piss off other individuals in the Democratic Party. So here's the clip and then we'll talk about the response. Do you consider Juan Guaido the legitimate president of Venezuela? No, I think what has to happen right now, I think there are serious questions about the recent election. Uh, there are many people who feel it was a fraudulent election. Uh, and I think the United States has got to work with the international community uh, to make sure that there is a free and fair election uh, in Venezuela. So is Nicolás Maduro a dictator senator for you? And should he go? All right. I think clearly he has been very, very abusive. That is a decision of the Venezuelan people. So I think, oh, Jorge, there's got to be a free and fair election. But what must not happen is that the United States must not use military force and intervene again, as it has done in the past in Latin America, whether it was, as you recall, whether it was uh, Chile or Brazil or the Dominican Republic or Guatemala. The United States has a very bad record of intervening uh, in Latin American countries. That must not happen again. The future of Venezuela must be left to the Venezuelan people. That was much better, Bernie. And to be fair, he did do this interview a couple of days before he made that tweet, I believe. So that's what we want to see from Bernie Sanders. We want him to unequivocally say, no, we're not going to do a regime change war because that doesn't work out for us. And second of all, um, we need to let the people of Venezuela ultimately decide, and I think he also did a good job at the CNN town hall when he was asked the question about why he doesn't support Maduro being overthrown, and he said, well, look, there's dictators around the world. Why aren't we overthrowing Saudi Arabia, where women are third-class citizens? So he makes a strong case, so I just wish that he would see that there are other aspects meant not for humanitarian aid, but under the guise of humanitarian aid to push for a regime change war. But with that being said, let's just stop for a moment and put ourselves in the shoes of Venezuelans. So let's say that China didn't like what transpired in 2016. They see that you know, there is a candidate that got more votes than the person who actually assumed office. That's problematic. That's not a real democracy. The Electoral College just subverted the will of the people. Hillary got 3 million more votes than Trump, and she's not president. 
that's not a real democracy. So maybe the United States should call for or hold a new election. What if China called for us to hold a new election? What if Germany called for us to hold a new election? Even if we all don't like Donald Trump, understand that the consequences of foreign governments calling for us to hold new elections would be nationally destabilizing, and it would create this chaotic situation. So ultimately, the goal is to let the people decide. If we have problems with our democracy, we work it out, not you. You don't get to tell us what we do in our country. And that's exactly what's being uh, done right now. So that's what Bernie Sanders communicated. We don't get to make that decision for Venezuela. They get to make the decision and we need to stop meddling. So even if he was wrong about, you know, the humanitarian aid issue, at least he acknowledges that regime change war is not acceptable. However, because he said that, because he didn't explicitly say we should overthrow Maduro, well, now centrist Democrats are pissed off with him. He just can't win. So according to this Politico article, quote, he is not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. He has demonstrated again that he does not understand this situation. Representative Donna Shalala, a Miami Democrat who represents Venezuelan exiles, told Politico, I absolutely disagree with his imprecision in not saying Maduro must go. Shalala has filed legislation aimed at helping Venezuelan immigrants. Helena Poleo, a Democrat who is a former journalist from Venezuela and is a Spanish-language commentator, called Sanders' comments disgusting. The Florida Democratic Party needs to denounce this now. The state party made its position on Maduro clear without mentioning Sanders by name. Florida Democrats have been unequivocal. We recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, denounced the legitimacy of the Maduro regime and his efforts to remain illegally in power, the party said in a statement. Its comments echoed those of Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who represents one of the largest Venezuelan populations in the United States. So, I mean, it's obvious that Bernie Sanders feels as if he has to walk a fine line to appease both sides, but here's the problem with doing that. By trying to placate your critics, Bernie, all you're doing is pissing off your supporters. Because you can't appease both sides. There's the truth, and then there's the warmongers who want regime change in Venezuela. They're specifically mad at you, Shalala is at least, because you won't say we should overthrow Maduro. So what you need to do is be forceful in opposing any and all regime change efforts in order to appease the people who matter most, your base. And he's also done this with other issues as well, because the establishment is always promoting this false narrative that Bernie Sanders supporters are bullying and harassing women. And he unequivocally condemned any and all harassment, because who wouldn't? But the reason why he did this is because establishment loyalists are trying to promote this false narrative that Bernie Sanders supporters are notorious for harassing women. When we all know that that's not true, Vox actually did an analysis back in 2016, and it showed that Hillary supporters were actually more aggressive online than Bernie Sanders supporters. And his supporters, along with John Kasich, were the more docile online, but it's clear that he's trying to placate his critics here. And as Kyle Kalinske points out, my dude, I know you're trying to placate your critics here, but you have to understand there's no appeasing smear merchants. They're going to smear you no matter what you do. Also, the premise of your supporters being uniquely cruel online is hilariously untrue. Don't feed into it. Yeah, and I totally agree. Don't feed into it because it's not true. So they're going to smear you no matter what. If you appease them on this issue, then there's going to be something else that they're going to criticize you for. It's like playing whack-a-mole. One issue goes down, another one will pop up, so you're never going to appease them. The best you can do is speak truth to power, Bernie, and represent 
your base, who is unequivocally against regime change war in Venezuela, the American people, even though we haven't seen polls, I take it would be against regime change, change wars in Venezuela. I mean, look at what happened in Libya. Obama and Hillary Clinton overthrew Gaddafi, and now they have a literal slave trade out in the open. It's not even underground. It's not a black market slave trade. They have open slave markets in Libya. So, I mean, it's up to the people to push back. You know, and the United States can't keep doing this. They can't keep saying, well, we don't like X, Y, and Z aspects of said country, so they need to either call a new election or we're going to intervene. No, stop meddling and just ignore what's happening around the world because you only make matters worse. Now, for those of you who feel as if, you know, we shouldn't criticize Bernie Sanders, understand that we need to vocalize our disagreements with him because Bernie Sanders is unique in comparison with other politicians. He actually seems to listen. And there's just a few politicians that actually listen. Ro Khanna is one, Tulsi Gabbard is another, Bernie Sanders is basically the only senator who listens. Maybe besides Jeff Merkley, Elizabeth Warren to a degree, but she listens more to her strategists and aides. So at the end of the day, you know, Bernie Sanders, he tried to please everyone and ended up appeasing no one and pissing off everyone. So the best you can do in this situation is be bold and unapologetically progressive and say, stop meddling in Venezuela. Stop pretending that you care about aid. Stop offering aid when you know Maduro's going to reject it because he doesn't trust us. He might think that we're trying to smuggle guns into to the country, you know, with aid. Just stop. You know we're not going to help. We're only going to make things exponentially worse. Just stop. So if he just said that, you'd at least not piss off your base, which is who you need the most, Bernie. So a lot of people were furious, and uh, rightfully so, but don't be afraid to vocalize your criticisms because he listens, and that's important. But overall, this Venezuelan situation, it's, it's going down a bad path, and I worry because there's no opposition who's really speaking out against this. I mean, you have some people in the Democratic Party, like Bernie Sanders and Chris Murphy, who are saying, let's stop and analyze what's happening and be nuanced. But then you have others like Shalala, who are saying, basically, oh, you don't support the overthrow of Maduro? What a horrible person you are. I mean, this is the state of discourse. If you talk about not wanting to wage a regime change war, you're demonized. Look at Tulsi Gabbard's appearance on The View. Meghan McCain called her an Assad apologist. She was grilled for not wanting to intervene in Venezuela. This is the state of affairs. There's one narrative, and if you buck that narrative, you are going to be attacked. Bernie, of all people, should know that. So just come out swinging, Bernie. Come out swinging, say no. No regime change war in Venezuela, no aid in Venezuela, because even if we want there to be aid going into the country, we already know what's going to happen. And furthermore, if other countries are giving Venezuela aid that their government is accepting, then why are we trying to give them aid when they know that we're a threat to them. Why would they be stupid enough to accept that? So that's it. You know, I, I just wish that Bernie Sanders would listen to us and take the right principled position that he knows deep down is right, rather than trying to appease warmongers in the establishment who will just find a different reason to smear him if he does actually appease them in any way. 
I don't know what it is about this week in particular, but this is the week when it seems as if all of the 2020 presidential contenders decided to shit the bed at once. Because you have Bernie Sanders falling for the humanitarian aid trap that Trump's administration set for Venezuela. You have Tulsi Gabbard saying she hasn't co-sponsored the Green New Deal due to its, quote, vagueness. You have Kirsten Gillibrand trying to convince us that a fundraiser being hosted at the home of a big pharma executive is totally not a big deal. Nothing wrong there, guys. You have Hollywood elites hosting high-dollar fundraisers for Kamala Harris. And when it comes to Amy Klobuchar, she ate salad with a comb. Yeah. So the point is that if you support these candidates, then you need to be objective and understand that there is no such thing as a perfect candidate. Even progressives can disappoint us sometimes, and they can disappoint us quite a bit. So what's important is that if you actually do support a particular candidate, don't try to affirm every single thing that they do. Don't allow a cult of personality to be formed. Actually challenge them to do better because you're doing a greater service to that candidate and helping them more than if you were just to try to, you know, explain away things that other people take issue with. Now, I want to talk about probably my biggest disappointment this week, and that comes from Elizabeth Warren. And this one really hurt my heart because lately it seems like Elizabeth Warren has kind of been on a roll. I mean, she proposed a really aggressive bill to tackle corruption, which I love. She released an ambitious childcare proposal, which is phenomenal. And then she announced that she is going to go fully grassroots funded and would be swearing off high dollar fundraisers and phone calls with high dollar donors. So that's something that is incredibly important and understand that when she's saying this, she's taking it a step further than individuals like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kamala Harris, who simply just chose to swore off corporate PAC money. Now, that's still important, but what really matters is you not getting biased by rich people. And that's what Elizabeth Warren is taking a stand against here. However, in an interview with TYT, she clarified this a little bit, and it's not as good as I initially thought because she's only choosing to follow this principle during the primary. However, when it comes to the general in the event she wins the Democratic Party's nomination, all bets are off and she will be taking money from high dollar donors and doing these fundraisers. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you don't believe in unilateral disarmament. So does this only apply in the primaries or will you carry this over to the general election or any other election you'll have going forward? So this is for primaries. Look, I do not believe in unilateral disarmament. We need to win. We need to win in 2020. And when we hit 2020 and we're in a race against Donald Trump, when we're in a race for control of the Senate and control of the House and in control of the state houses and the governor's mansions, in all of those, the Republicans are going to be bringing a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of dark money, a lot of super PACs all to the fight. We play by the same rules. And in that one, I say we got to be all in. Because we have to beat the Republicans. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds eerily similar to what Barney Frank, a Hillary Clinton surrogate, said back in 2016 to justify the large contributions that Hillary Clinton was taking from Wall Street. Uh, I don't believe that people on the left should engage in unilateral disarmament. Do you think it would really be better for liberals, regulators, if all the money from the banks went to Republicans as opposed to just 80%? 
because we can accomplish that. We can refuse to accept any. Yes, because the left is supposed to be better than the right. We expect more from Democrats. Nobody even expects Republicans to be even remotely reasonable on any issue. So we have no choice but to hold the Democratic Party to a higher standard. So if you're going to present me with this option, well, should they only take, you know, um, a small portion of the money or, or nothing? I'm going to tell you nothing because... Contrary to popular belief, not taking corporate PAC money and not being corrupt, it's not unilateral disarmament. It's a commitment to the people. It's a commitment to actually stand up against the special interest that time after time has corrupted politicians. Now, another reason why this is problematic is because it's really not necessary. In a two-way race, name recognition won't be an issue. Getting your message out there is not going to be an issue, and certainly raising more money isn't going to guarantee you a victory. You can talk to Hillary Clinton about that, and I have no reason to believe that taking Wall Street money will make you more powerful and a more formidable opponent when going up against Donald Trump in 2020. So the problem here is that if you agree to take money from morally reprehensible industries like Wall Street and Big Pharma, that creates a conflict of interest and we can't expect you to represent us if you've taken their money so you have to understand that this is not going to convince people and anna actually followed up and asked warren do you not see how this can possibly turn people off and her response wasn't satisfactory. Are you at all concerned, though, that if if you pivot toward accepting money from big donors, that would turn some of the, uh, I, you know, I want to say progressives, but it's not just progressives who want to see uh, the abandonment of big donors. Um, most voters are concerned about this issue. Are you at all worried that they would stay home during the general election if you pivot toward accepting that money? Look, I think that what we've got right now is we got to show what we can build person to person to person to person across this country. I think we've got to show what we can build through democracy, that we believe in democracy, that we have faith in democracy, that we can make democracy work. I think we can show that in our primary. I think then we can just be tough as nails and take on Donald Trump, take on the Republican senators and congressmen in the general election, and then we got to change the laws. In other words, no. And the problem is, is that you can't expect us to believe you're really going to change the laws if you have these Wall Street executives and big pharma executives contributing to your campaign with the expectation and maybe the implicit promise that you won't, in fact, change these laws. Because how many politicians promise to change the laws once they get elected after taking big money? And then they don't do that. They do the bidding of the industries that got them into office. It's happened countless times. So I really hope that Elizabeth Warren reconsiders because I don't think that she realizes the extent to which this would hurt her reputation and her campaign in the event she became the Democratic Party nominee. If you're going to swear off corporate PAC money and top dollar fundraisers, then see it all the way through. Don't just do it during the primaries because it's not unilateral disarmament. What really is unilateral disarmament is agreeing to accept this money that is politically toxic from special interests because we all know what that does. A 2014 Princeton University study by Drs. Gillens and Page found that 
special interests, they actually have a bigger say on policy outcomes than average Americans. We have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, and that's because of the money. That's because of these bribes that are given to politicians. So be the progressive champion that we all want you to be. Say no to fundraisers and see this all the way through, Warren, please, because this is something that I cannot tell you would damage you to an extent that it did Hillary Clinton, potentially. It would turn off the base, and if you want to beat Trump, then... What you need to do is make sure that your base is excited. And I could promise you this, you're not going to excite anyone if you're taking all this lobbyist money and attending these rich fundraisers with billionaires and millionaires. There's been allegations that 2020 presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar, otherwise known as Amy Cloudbuchar, um, as my buddy Kyle Kalinske likes to call her, is creating a toxic work environment for her staffers by being overly abusive, by yelling at them, and even throwing things at them, reportedly. So this is incredibly problematic. I've been part of toxic work situations, and it's mentally taxing. You know, that type of psychological abuse is completely unwarranted, no matter how incompetent you think your subordinates are, and you should treat everyone with respect, because even if you're in a position of power, you're not better than them. We're all just human beings. So these are the stories that a lot of people have been talking about. I haven't covered these stories because they don't really yield anything of value when it comes to policy, and I try to stay focused on the policy. However, there's one story that came out with regard to this particular issue and this weakness for Amy Cloud Buchar that I simply can't stop thinking about. I can't get it off of my mind. And because it has taken such <laughs> a special place in my heart, I've got to talk about it. So I think that the headline that I'm about to read to you speaks for itself. As David Moy of HuffPost reports, quote, Amy Klobuchar screamed at an aide and then ate her salad with a comb. Um, yeah, I, I've got nothing. <laughs> and full disclosure here, <laughs> there is nothing substantive about this story. I really shouldn't be making a video about this. I can't help myself. This is an anecdote that has gotten me completely baffled. Like, I cover politics for a living, and this is the one story that has me essentially speechless. Let's read that again. Amy Klobuchar screamed at an aide and then ate her salad with a comb. We're not talking metaphorically, we're talking literally. She pulled out a comb from her bag and ate her entire fucking salad with it. Wow. Um, I'll just say, I'll state the obvious, that is not normal behavior that well-adjusted adults would engage in. We would just not eat the salad if all we had was a comb. So let's get to the details here. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has already come under fire for the way she treats her staff, but there's one allegation that's really forked up. That was bad. 
The New York Times is reporting that back in 2008, Klobuchar was traveling to South Carolina when an aide procured a salad for her to eat on the plane. Unfortunately, he forgot to get a fork before getting on the plane, and the crew didn't have utensils either. Klobuchar reportedly berated the aide for the goof, but what happened next was even more shocking. The senator pulled a comb from her bag and used it as a makeshift fork, the Times reported. It got even grosser. Once she finished her meal, Klobuchar handed the comb to her aide and demanded he clean it. <laughs> Huff... HuffPost reached out to the Klobuchar campaign, which did not immediately respond. However, the Times reports that Klobuchar has recounted the incident to fellow Democrats. The incident seems to fit in with other reports that the senator and 2020 presidential candidate is hard on her staff, so hard that at least three people have withdrawn from consideration to lead her campaign. Jesus Christ. This is going to be the weirdest story of all of 2020, of this entire cycle. I'm calling it now. Actually, I shouldn't do that because this is America and there could be weirder stories. But, I mean, why? Why would you do something like this? If I didn't have anything to eat my my salad with, then what do you do? You throw the fucking salad away. You don't pull out a disgusting, dirty comb and then eat with it. Because I'm assuming that she puts hairspray or gel on her hair, whatever the kids are doing nowadays, and she brushes her hair, combs her hair with that, and there's maybe dandruff on there, and she's eating her fucking salad with it. How disgusting. Amy, what the hell is wrong with you? Why would you do something like this? And then to make matters worse, she demanded that her aide clean off this disgusting comb that she used to eat her salad with. This is disgusting. And if I were the aide, I would have said... No, <laughs> I don't care. You can write me up. You can fire me. I'm not cleaning your disgusting comb that you just ate your fucking salad with. Ew, clean that shit yourself. What are you doing? You want me to wipe your ass next? Are you serious? I'm not going to do that. I mean, what is wrong with you? Wow. So the fact that she is fostering a, a toxic work environment in and of itself that's problematic. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's disqualifying because, to be fair, if Bernie Sanders was being rude to his staffers and creating a toxic work environment, even though I would be critical of him and want him to stop doing that, I don't necessarily think I would stop supporting him because I do think that policy is what matters most. But when it comes to this level of just, um, I don't know what you, what you want to call it, just, um, I don't know what the right word is. Elitist, where you eat your salad with a comb and then you demand that your aide wash out that comb. That is just weird. And I hope that people ask her about this. I hope that reporters ask her about this. Not necessarily because as Americans, we need to know about this going into the voting booth, but because for me personally, this story is fucking crazy. And I keep thinking about this. And as I play these details out through my mind again and again, I still almost can't believe that it's true because who would who would eat their fucking salad with a comb? I would actually just use my hand. Like if I really wanted the salad, we had no other utensils or whatever. I'd just get like a spoon. I'm sure that you know the flight attendants maybe they didn't have forks, but they just had spoons. I don't I don't know. I would use my hands before I use a disgusting dirty comb. 
And I certainly wouldn't ask anyone else to clean that disgusting comb in the weird event that I got desperate enough to eat a fucking salad with it. Unbelievable story. So weird. I still don't know how to process this, but I had to share the story with you because I don't want to be the only one who is thinking about this, who is having this bizarre story occupy his mental space. Other people need to know about this. I'm sharing the weirdness with you. There's no reason for me to talk about this. It's not substantive whatsoever, but I'm still doing it anyway because what the fuck? This is just one of those stories where it's just that bizarre. And I thought about making this just a weekly dose of stupidity segment, but still, I, I, like, it wouldn't satisfy me. I just have to vocalize this just as a means of therapy and expressing how weird this story is and i'll leave it there i am so sorry to put you through this and cover this if you watch this video i am incredibly sorry i apologize wholeheartedly um i will do better <laughs> but but most importantly let's hope that amy klobuchar does better because this is not normal behavior it is just it's irrational it's downright strange amy jesus Ivanka Trump is someone who is an heiress who will inherit millions upon millions of dollars once her father passes away. Now, if Donald Trump gets his way, then he will make sure that what he passes on to his children will be taxed at a substantially lower rate than it would be now. So, she's someone who is inheriting wealth that she obviously did not earn. You didn't earn it if you're simply born into wealth. However, when it comes to whether or not the peasants should be allowed to get something that they didn't earn, this is what Ivanka Trump, an oligarch who's an heiress, has to say about them getting something that they didn't earn. You've got people who will see that offer from the Democrats, from the progressive Democrats, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Here's the Green New Deal, here's a guarantee of a job. And think, yeah, that's what I want, that's simple. What do you say to those people? I don't think most Americans in their heart want to be given something. They're, I've spent a lot of time traveling around this country over the last four years. People want to work for what they get. Mm -hmm. So I think this idea of a guaranteed minimum is not something most people want. They want the ability to be able to secure a job. They want the ability to live in a country where there's the potential for upward mobility. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is all the proof you need that we do not live in a meritocracy. I can earn or I can inherit money without earning it, and that's fine, but when it comes to the peasants, no, they want to work until they die. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen anyone more out of touch than this right here. Quote, I don't think most Americans in their heart want to be given something. People want to work for what they get. So, if that's true, does it also apply to you? Will you refuse to accept the money that your father will inevitably pass down to you? <laughs> Didn't think so. And furthermore, what qualifies you to have that cushy job in the White House? You have no qualifications. 
You have a clothing company that's only successful because your dad pumped millions of dollars into it. And your dad is only successful because your dad inherited the money that ultimately was stolen from the American people due to a complex tax avoidance scheme that was recently exposed by the New York Times. So of all people in the world... Ivanka Trump is the person I want to hear the least from because you are so far detached from reality. You have no idea what the peasants experience and what their day-to-day life is like. You have no idea what living paycheck to paycheck is like. In fact, let me ask you this, Ivanka Trump. How much does a banana cost? Can you answer that question? Have you been in a grocery store recently or do you just have your handlers shop for you? I mean, it's 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 absurd. And you have to understand here the ignorance and the contradiction at the same time. Because on one hand, she says, oh, I don't think Americans want a guaranteed minimum, but they do want upward mobility. Well, genius, you can't really have a chance at upward mobility unless you have a guaranteed minimum. If you don't create a floor or a social safety net and you allow American citizens to fall below that, then they have no chance at upward mobility. If you can't afford college, you can't get hired at a job that requires a college degree. If you don't have access to clean drinking water, you can't be healthy enough to work hard enough to even have a chance at upward mobility. So forgive me for not caring about what you have to say with regard to this specific issue. Americans did earn the things that you're calling free. Our tax dollars pay for these things. And if you actually talk to the American people and not just sycophants of your dad, then you'll see that Americans do want Medicare for all. Americans do want to increase the minimum wage. Americans do want to save and protect Social Security. Americans do want a federal jobs guarantee. Americans do want the wealthy such as yourself, to pay higher taxes. But of course, she wouldn't know what real Americans think because she's not a real American. She is an oligarch who is detached from the struggle of the everyday man and the everyday woman. She has no idea. She is clueless. Now, she was asked a different question. She was asked about her dad's plans for 2020, and she demonstrated, once again, just how out of touch she is. Your father's gearing up for 2020. How's this all going to play out? Free market capitalism versus the socialist guaranteed job alternative. How's that going to play out? Well, I think fundamentally, if you ask yourself the question, are we better today than we were yesterday or we were two years ago? The answer is undoubtedly yes. So as an American family is sitting down and they're thinking about their financial situation relative to a month ago, a year ago, America is doing very well. And it stands in quite sharp contrast to the rest of the world. So not only are we doing well, much of the world has slowed down in terms of the pace of their growth. And our policies are continuing to allow this economy to thrive. Is that so? (laughs) What they don't realize, what Republicans are failing to see, is that you can't gaslight people about something that they have firsthand experience in dealing with. They're trying to do this with healthcare. Oh, well, you're going to lose your private insurance if we switch over to Medicare for All. Do you understand that people hate 
private insurance. They hate filling out the paperwork. They hate paying their monthly premium that always increases and then finding out they have to pay more copays and deductibles when they actually want to see a doctor on top of paying their monthly premium. Do you understand that that doesn't work with us if we know what's happening? So she says, oh, well, you know, people are going to see for themselves how they're doing, except the problem is that people are seeing how your father's tax law is negatively affecting them because they're seeing not only that they're getting lower refunds due to less deductions, but they're realizing that they owe money when they theoretically shouldn't have to owe money and didn't before. And all of this is attributed directly to your dad's decision to cut his own taxes and shift that burden onto the working class. Have fun explaining that to the American people. This is what happens when you live in a bubble and you surround yourself with yes men and yes women. Every idea you have, regardless of how dumb it may be, well, they're going to tell you that it's brilliant. It's the most genius thing that they ever heard in their entire lives. But in actuality, you need to be exposed to people who will push back. But if you're in a bubble, you just don't have that, which is why we're seeing Donald Trump melt down by any criticism that's lobbed against him. He can't take it because if you live your entire life surrounded by yes men and yes women and people who affirm every stupid thought that you have, then this is the result. And Ivanka Trump will be the same exact way. She's in for a wake-up call when she actually does talk to normal Americans and not just supporters of her dad because Americans don't agree with you Ivanka now since she attacked AOC's policies AOC did what she does best she ripped Ivanka Trump and she took to Twitter to state as a person who actually worked for tips and hourly wages in my life instead of having to learn about it secondhand I can tell you that most people want to be paid enough to live a living wage isn't a gift it's a right workers are often paid far less than the value they create in fact wages are so low today compared to actual worker productivity that they are no longer the reflections of worker value as they used to be productivity has grown 6.2 two times more than pay. And my favorite response is this from AOC. Imagine attacking a jobs guarantee by saying people prefer to earn money. <laughs> That's exactly it. Because she is trying to explain something like a jobs guarantee as a handout when people are, they're begging to work. They're saying, no, I want to be guaranteed a job so I can work. So by definition, it's not a handout. But if you live in a bubble, and if you're an heiress who lives the life of a modern princess, then of course you wouldn't know that. So forgive me, Ivanka Trump, for never wanting to hear a princess explain to us or really rich explain to us what it is that we want. You have no idea what we want. You are detached from the struggle of everyday Americans. And not only are you unqualified to serve in the White House in any capacity, as is the case with your dad, but you're unqualified to talk about issues that affect the American people because you don't know what affects the American people. Because you were born into wealth, you've never had to work a real job for even a day in your life, and you don't know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. So sit down, have a seat, and actually step aside for progressives to come in and fix the economy that you and your Republican dad are helping to ruin even further. President Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, testified before the House Oversight Committee and obviously there's a lot to unpack because we have hours worth of testimony to get through, but I'm not going to get through all of it. What I will do is basically 
pull out some clips that I found the most interesting and important as it relates specifically to Donald Trump and potential criminality. And, you know, when we get through this segment, you're going to see that I believe it is confirming criminality. Now, there are other moments that were pretty interesting. You know, there was a blow-up between Mark Meadows and Rashida Tlaib where she called him out for an act of racism and that got pretty heated. I don't want to talk about that specifically, but I would encourage you to watch it just because what she did was great. But um, I will talk about Donald Trump and what I think this means for him um, and whether or not we can trust Michael Cohen. I am fully willing to admit that this is someone who is a sleazy individual. Anyone who is a fixer, they're probably pretty sketchy. However, when it comes to juxtaposing, you know, who I believe more, Trump or Cohen, it's an easy decision. And when you also take into account the fact that what Michael Cohen said in his testimony wasn't surprising at all, I believe him. Now, the biggest revelation is essentially confirmation that it was, in fact, Donald Trump, who directed Michael Cohen to give Stormy Daniels the bribe to keep quiet so she didn't spill the beans about their affair and hurt his chances going into 2016. He brought checks that Trump made to him, gotcha, bitch. and I think that this pretty much confirms criminality. Not necessarily in the legal sense, because there's still more investigations that need to be done. However, just in the court of public opinion, I don't know how you can hear him listen to his testimony and see the checks and not think Trump's guilty. Now, we're going to get to a couple more specifics, but let me just play a compilation video from The Guardian where they just go through some of the highlights here. And again, keep in mind, I'm showing you this because I think it's important, but none of what Michael Cohen says here in his testimony should surprise anyone if you've been paying attention. I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man. And he is a cheat. Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He lied about it because he never expected to win. He also lied about it because he stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars on the Moscow real estate project. He asked me to pay off an adult film star with whom he had an affair and to lie about it to his wife, which I did. I am providing a copy of a $35,000 check that President Trump personally signed from his personal bank account on August 1st of 2017, when he was President of the United States, to reimburse me, the word used by Mr. Trump's TV lawyer for the illegal hush money I paid on his behalf. Mr. Trump is a racist. The country has seen Mr. Trump court white supremacists and bigots. You have heard him call poorer countries shitholes. His private, in private, he is even worse. He once asked me if I could name a country run by a black person that wasn't a shithole. This was when Barack Obama was president of the United States. And while we were once driving through a struggling neighborhood in Chicago, he commented that only black people could live that way. And he told me 
that black people would never vote for him because they were too stupid. A lot of people have asked me about whether Mr. Trump knew about the release of the hacked documents, the Democratic National Committee emails, ahead of time. And the answer is yes. In July of 2016, days before the Democratic Convention, I was in Mr. Trump's office when his secretary announced that Roger Stone was on the phone. Mr. Trump put Mr. Stone on the speakerphone. Mr. Stone told Mr. Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange and that Mr. Assange told Mr. Stone that within a couple of days there would be a massive dump of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mr. Trump responded by stating to the effect, wouldn't that be great? Donald Trump is a man who ran for office to make his brand great not to make our country great. He had no desire or intention to lead this nation, only to market himself and to build his wealth and power. Mr. Trump would often say, this campaign was going to be the greatest infomercial in political history. Yeah, so none of that was surprising to me whatsoever. In his opening testimony, he referred to Donald Trump as, quote, a racist, con man, and a cheat. No shit. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't help but think while watching Michael Cohen's testimony that running for president was the worst thing that Donald Trump ever did because I got the sense that Donald Trump is someone who's basically a mob boss, but not any old mob boss. Like, he is the star of a slapstick comedy where he plays a dumb, ditzy mob boss who leaves a trail of breadcrumbs everywhere he goes that leads back to his criminality. That's essentially what I took away from this, because Donald Trump is everything we thought that he was. If you, if you want to take Michael Cohen at his word, and I pretty much believe him in most of what he says here, if not all of what he says here, he says Trump knew about and directed the Moscow negotiations with regard to Trump Tower being put in Moscow. Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is at the heart of the Trump-Russia investigation, and it's why once Mueller expanded his investigation to include Trump's shady business dealings, that's when this really became a serious story, because if you talk about collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, and treason potentially, I mean, that's just a stretch, but when you're talking about business dealings, yeah, Donald Trump is a corrupt, shady, sketchy individual who conducted his businesses in an unethical way. I mean, I think that you could probably throw a dart at a map on the wall, and whatever country that dart lands on, you'd find some type of shady business dealings there involving Donald Trump, because that's just the type of person he is. Um, more here. He asked me to pay off a porn star and to lie to his wife about it. Not surprising. Um, Mr. Trump is a racist. In private, he's even worse. He once asked me if he could name one country run by a black person that wasn't a shithole. And this was when Obama was president. Uh, when we were driving through a struggling neighborhood in Chicago, he said only black people could live this way and that they were too stupid to vote for him. I mean, things like this that 
are not surprising. If you listen to Donald Trump speak and listen to not just racial insensitivity, but overt racism, then this is all believable. Of course, he has these feelings in his heart. He's a fucking racist and he's been a racist. If you look at the racial discrimination cases back in the 70s when he wouldn't rent to black Americans, then this isn't anything that's new. It's not surprising to anyone. So, of course, when Michael Cohen says it, I absolutely believe him. Trump ran for office to make his brand great, not to make the country great. He had no desire or intention to lead the nation. Um, at one point, I believe Michael Cohen basically alluded to pretty explicitly that Donald Trump didn't even think he would win, not just, you know, the nomination, but the presidency. This isn't surprising to anyone. In fact, during the general election, when he started talking about how Hillary Clinton and Obama founded ISIS, it seemed as if he was intentionally trying to tank his own chances. And this is something that was reflected in satirical bits on South Park. When Mr. Garrison was Donald Trump and he didn't want to win and he was trying to tank his chances at the debate, but it was only making him more popular by getting more stupid. Another aspect here that I want to touch on, Roger Stone reportedly talked to Julian Assange and he let Donald Trump know that there would be a DNC email dump and Donald Trump thought that that was great. Now, um, let me just say this because this gets lost in the discussion. Was it the case that WikiLeaks was trying to hurt Hillary Clinton's chances by releasing hacked DNC emails? Unquestionably. In fact, direct messages from Julian Assange reveal this to be the case. And I disagree with that because if you're going to just intentionally release information that harms one party, then I do find that problematic. Release all the information. Release Republican Party emails as well. I'm not calling on anyone to commit a crime, but I'm saying if you want to just have the American people make their own decision, then you can't withhold information. You probably have dirt on Republicans and not release it on them, but release it on Democrats. Of course, that's a problem. However, simultaneously, is it also true that if the DNC and Hillary Clinton weren't colluding to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign, that that couldn't have hurt them to begin with? Yes. So let's always remember that when we're talking about leaked DNC emails, we are showing them unethically trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders. We're seeing the media colluding with Hillary Clinton's team and Democratic Party operatives to try to bring him down. So don't let that fact, that's really important, fall by the wayside. So that's one thing I want to say. Now, I'm going to show you one clip. Um, I have two clips in total left. In this next clip, Michael Cohen is going to explain why he flipped, and he's going to try to convince you all that he did it out of principle, and not necessarily that he got busted and that the FBI raided his office, but he's going to tell you that, you know, he flipped because he genuinely cares. Um, I found this part really disingenuous, but what he said to Republicans is damaging, I think, about Donald Trump specifically. Several times in your testimony, you state the bad things that you did for Mr. Trump. And at some point, um, you apparently changed your course of action. There's a recurring refrain in your testimony that says, and yet I continued to work for him. But at some point you changed. What was the breaking point at which you decided to start telling the truth? There are several factors. Helsinki, Charlottesville, watching the daily destruction of our civility to one another, putting up silly things like this, oh, that's silly. really unbecoming of Congress, 
It's that sort of behavior that I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for your silliness because I did the same thing that you're doing now for 10 years. I protected Mr. Trump for 10 years. And the fact that you pull up a news article that has no value to it, and you want to use that as the premise for discrediting me, that I'm not the person that people called at 3 o'clock in the morning, would make you inaccurate. In actuality, it would make you a liar, which puts you into the same position that I am in. And I can only warn people, the more people that follow Mr. Trump, as I did blindly, are going to suffer the same consequences that I'm suffering. So that was incredibly interesting to me because he's warning Republicans, look, you're protecting Donald Trump. You're trying to, you know, um, run defense for him currently, but you're going to end up in a situation like me. And if you tuned into the first portion, it's obvious that Republicans didn't even want this hearing to take place. They didn't want Michael Cohen to testify because obviously they were trying to protect Donald Trump because if you tarnish the reputation of the Republican president, then of course there are going to be Republicans that will inevitably be collateral damage. The party's name will take a hit because of Donald Trump and what Michael Cohen revealed. So of course they didn't want it to go through, but I like that he gave them that warning. Look, you're doing this now, but it's not going to pay off. That, to me, was a pretty powerful statement, even if his reasoning for testifying was disingenuous, and it came off to me as virtue signaling. Oh, you know, I care about the American people and civility. You got busted. Let's just call it what it is. You got busted, and that's why you're here today, and it's why you are going to prison. But nonetheless, one more clip I'm going to show you is um, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And what she did here was brilliant in my view because she essentially got Cohen to confirm that Donald Trump is guilty of possibly more criminality with regard to tax fraud and tax evasion. The Trump Golf Organization currently has a golf course in my home borough of the Bronx, uh, Trump Links. I drive past it every day going between, Bronx and, going between the Bronx and Queens. Um, in fact, the Washington Post reported on the Trump Links Bronx course in an article entitled, Taxpayers Built This New York Golf Course and Trump Reaps the Rewards. Where many, that, that article is where many New Yorkers and people in the country learn that taxpayers spent $127 million to build Trump Links in a, quote, generous deal allowing President Trump to keep almost every dollar that flows in on a golf course built with public funds. And this doesn't seem to be the only time the president has benefited at the expense of the public. Mr. Cohen, I want to ask you about your assertion that the president may have improperly devalued his assets to avoid paying taxes. According to an August, 24th, August 21st, 2016 report by the Washington Post, while the president claimed in financial disclosure forms that Trump National Golf Club in Jupiter, Florida, was worth more than $50 million, he had reported otherwise to local tax authorities that the course was worth, quote, no more than five million. Mr. Cohen, do you know whether this specific report is accurate? It's identical to what he did at Trump National Golf Club at Briarcliff Manor. Do you know, to your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset and then you put in a request to the tax department 
for a deduction. Thank you. That to me stood out because Cohen is admitting that Donald Trump basically is in fact and was doing and is still benefiting from these tax schemes where he's intentionally and artificially devaluing his property so he can pay less in taxes. Um, it's just despicable. And what was the first major legislative achievement that he got as president? He reduced his own taxes. So Donald Trump is about one thing and one thing only, not making America great again, but boosting his own personal wealth. That's what he's always been about. And it's not necessarily just about wealth and power, but it's about him being celebrity and, you know, being adored by people. And he certainly has his, you know, group and block of loyal sycophants. But for the most part, as I stated earlier, running for president was the worst thing ever because it really got us to dive a little bit deeper into Donald Trump. I mean, just hearing him speak before, you know, he's a fraud, but diving into the details, learning the extent to which he's a fraud and a criminal and a thug. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's horrible for him. Now, after hearing this testimony, I really, I don't know how anyone can still support him. If you are a supporter who was duped by Donald Trump because he was talking in a populist way, that's fine. You were duped. There were red flags there that you should have seen, but I can forgive you for that. But if you still support him after this, then I, 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 can't, I can't understand that. I don't know how you rationalize that, and it's just baffling to me. Now, the one last thing, I don't have a clip for this, but Michael Cohen essentially paraphrased something Donald Trump said about Trump Jr., essentially saying that he has pretty poor judgment and confirming that Trump Jr. is the dumbest of all the Trumps. Um, I just thought that that was uh, pretty humorous. So, yeah, there's a lot that I'm leaving out here because um, this was a long testimony, but the overall takeaway, in my view, and people are going to take away different things, is that this is incredibly harmful to Donald Trump. I don't necessarily feel as if this will affect him negatively with uh, regard to his base because they've already drunk the Kool-Aid. They're going to blindly follow him and support him no matter what. But in terms of legally, the repercussions that this testimony will have, it's got to be bad for Donald Trump. Michael Cohen confirmed her. He brought checks to demonstrate that Donald Trump paid him back for him making illegal bribes, hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford's. And that is devastating. It confirms essentially, at least in the state of public opinion, that Donald Trump is a criminal and he broke the law. We've talked a lot about the public advocate race that's taking place in New York City. By the time you see this video, it will be the day that residents of New York City cast their votes. So be sure to go out and vote for Namiki Konst. And this has been a really fascinating race for a number of reasons. But one thing that's clear is that the establishment, not just in New York City, but the establishment nationally is terrified of Namiki Konst. And really, they should be because Namiki Konst is someone who is a true progressive. She's fighting for the people and she's a grassroots funded candidate. And the reason why the establishment is so terrified of Namiki Konst is because in a very crowded field with multiple people vying to be New York City's public advocate, she managed to outraise all of them, all from small dollar donors from across the country who want the policies that she'd be able to push for in New York City 
replicated perhaps in their state. So they believe in what she's talking about. This isn't just about New York City, in my opinion. This is about the progressive agenda being implemented nationally, but albeit, you know, in different local areas of the of the country. So this is an incredibly fascinating race, but it's clear that they're afraid of her. So if you're afraid of a candidate, if you see that she's picking up steam and she's putting forward a message that resonates with people, what do you do? Well, like the establishment always does, uh, they're opting to smear her. And that's exactly what Politico decided to do, where they published a hit piece on her that is probably one of the most shameless and embarrassing hit pieces I've ever read, because they just go through everything. Her personal life, her work life, professional life, you know, where she went to college, and they basically try to throw everything at the wall, or more specifically, they try to throw everything at Nimiki Konst in order to see what would stick, and the whole goal of this article was clearly to portray her as a wishy-washy person who, you should suspect, maybe isn't being truthful about herself. But the irony is that this article isn't being truthful, because... Namiki's campaign went through this article with a fine-tooth comb, and they reported 48 factual inaccuracies here. 48 in this article, which is unbelievable. Now, part of the problem is that Namiki Konst was not able to finish a long questionnaire that they submitted. So Politico wanted to do an interview with Namiki Konst, but they gave her a questionnaire that was long and lengthy just days before the election. So they filled out what they could, submitted the questions they were able to answer, and they said, look, we're not going to be able to make this really stringent timeline that you're putting forward. We have an election to run, and this isn't like other campaigns, like they're knocking on doors. You know what I mean? They're they're actually out there on the streets and in the field. So they can't take the time to just have all the grassroots, you know, um, staffers get out and get the word out. Namiki is out herself. So they made it very clear. We don't have time. So whatever they couldn't get answered from Namiki Khan's, they tried to portray it as her declining to answer the questions when they tried to emphasize that they don't have time. In fact, they quoted her campaign manager, Dominique, in this article where she said, we can't meet this deadline that you're imposing on us. And they they also, basically, any blanks that they couldn't fill in, they tried to portray that as suspect. And there's so much in this article, in this hit piece, that I can't possibly cover everything. But here's a couple of examples to just kind of demonstrate how disingenuous this article is. So it's titled, Who is Namiki Konst? And it's written by Dana Rubinstein and Laura Namias. And they're not just trying to communicate implicitly that Namiki Konst is wishy-washy because they state overtly here, quote, in the event she's elected, Konst would not be the first public advocate to struggle with accuracy. And they contend that she, quote, declined to answer many of the questions. Now by saying, well, you know, she's not the first public advocate to struggle with accuracy, they're trying to portray themselves as fair but they're omitting very specific details that should make them suspect, not Namiki. Now, to give you an example of that, I think the most brazen example is they take issue with Namiki Konst and her complaining about the debate moderator threatening to cut off her mic. So here's a clip of that. Thank you, Mr. Blake. Do I have a right to rebuttal? No, you don't. No, 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 you don't. No, 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 you don't. And if you keep interrupting, we'll turn off the mic. Please don't do that, okay? So you see very clearly there that Namiki Konst asked for a rebuttal, and then the moderator says, no, and I'll cut your mic. Now, 
Namiki Konst was right to complain, not just because I think he was overly rude, but because there's a conflict of interest that Politico refused to acknowledge. So first of all, that same individual who threatened to cut her mic, well, the problem with him hosting the debate is that Namiki Konst, running for public advocate, was very clearly against Amazon's deal in New York City. But that individual must have had it out for Namiki. I have no other reason to believe otherwise because he supports it vocally. Not only has he tweeted out support for the Amazon deal, but he also said this about the Amazon deal on air recently. The collapse of the Amazon headquarters deal will stand alongside other famous projects killed by a relatively small group of activists. It is the latest example of New York living out the old expression, Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. So now you kind of have some context here for that specific instance where Namiki Konst was complaining. This is kind of a problem. Maybe this guy has it out for me because I'm against the Amazon deal. He's for it and he's moderating the debate and he's clearly not being fair to me. So you have the details, right? So how do you think Politico frames this entire debacle? Well, they try to portray Namiki as the bad guy. So this is what they say, quote, she aggressively attacked the other candidates, accusing them of taking donations from real estate developers. She even suggested that NY1 moderator Errol Lewis, who threatened to cut her mic after interrupting other candidates, was trying to, quote, silence women. So they make no mention of the real crux of the issue here, that this is someone who is in favor of the Amazon deal, and he is moderating a debate where one of the public advocate candidates, Namiki Konst, is against the Amazon deal. So maybe he's being extra harsh to her, specifically because he doesn't want her to win because he supported the Amazon deal. So, I mean, that's basically what Namiki Konst was saying in calling out his bias, but they don't even mention that in this article. They just say, oh, well, Namiki Konst was attacking her opponents. Okay, but are you not going to mention the bias there? So they make no mention of that moderator's bias, but they do, however, bring up Namiki Konst's bias and her credibility as a journalist, saying, as a reporter for the Young Turks, Konst sometimes interviewed politicians whose campaigns she publicly supported or activists whose political positions she openly agreed with, but Konst sees no dissonance between her political activism and her journalism. Stop and just consider how ridiculous this is. According to these authors in this Politico hit piece, if you are interviewing a candidate who you publicly support and you disclose that, that's a problem. But if you are moderating a debate and you don't disclose that you openly are against one of the policies that is being pushed by one of the candidates, No problem there. In fact, it's such a non-issue that we're not even going to mention it. And understand here the problem with this. I actually do this as well. I interview people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Amy Valeda, who I actually support. But the thing that's important is that I actually disclose that. My viewers know exactly where I stand. I lay out all of my preferences and they know that I'm interviewing this individual, Candidate X with the intent of helping them. I'm disclosing that information. But at the same time, what's most important is not false neutrality, it's objectivity. So if Namiki Konst or myself are interviewing candidates we support in an effort to help them get elected, what matters is that we're not pretending to be neutral like that host was doing, but they didn't have a problem with him doing it. They didn't have a problem with him being unfair to Namiki Konst, threatening to cut off her mic when she wanted to rebut one of the claims made about her. And 
they don't even care that he was publicly saying how much he supported the Amazon deal. So maybe going into that moderation gig, he should have disclosed the fact that he supported the Amazon deal. But they don't find a problem with that. And that's not the only area where you will see that this is a hit piece. Let's go through some others because the rest of it, it just oozes contempt from the authors of Namiki Konst. So when it comes to Standing Rock, they try to make it seem as if her reporting at the time when she was at Standing Rock was disingenuous. Quote, while working for the Young Turks, she says she was bombed in the Dakotas amid protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. I was at Standing Rock in the water when there were like bombs being thrown at us, literally, where a woman got her arm ripped off and she still is paralyzed in one arm, she said. In possible reference to protester Sofia Wolanski, whose arm was damaged by shrapnel of indeterminate origin. To say that her arm was damaged due to an indeterminate origin, you're being a liar. You're being disingenuous. So you may not be able to point out the specific cop who was actually responsible for firing the shot that hurt her, the rubber bullets, whatever it may be, I don't know what it was, but to say that it was from an indeterminate origin is just disgusting, in my opinion, and second of all, to suggest that Nomiki Kans was trying to be hyperbolic here when she described it as basically bombs being thrown, it was like a war zone. If you watched any of the reports, I was watching Jordan Sheridan's reporting, Nomiki Kans reporting at the time, and I was basing my opinion off of what they were saying on the ground. You could tell that Standing Rock was in fact like a war zone because there were militarized police officers that were brutalizing protesters. They were spraying protesters with cold water and freezing weather. So they're trying to downplay what happened at Standing Standing Rock in an effort to discredit Namiki Kant. It's just disgusting. Now, another weird thing that they included here is, quote, Kant says she attended the University of Arizona, but declined to say if she graduated. Inquiries to the university were not returned i.e. she probably just didn't get to this question and left it out, but they're trying to raise doubt that, well, you know, she says she went to this university, but, I mean, did she even get a degree here? Who cares? You're not even talking about the issues here. And I get that this is a who is Namiki Konst piece, but if you don't have the info, then you don't report on it. Why would you even include that? I mean, it's clear that they don't like Namiki Konst. And they are trying to prime you to believe that she's someone who can't be trusted. Another thing they said here, they basically downplayed her achievements. Quote, she describes herself on her campaign website as an award-winning investigative journalist. Asked to specify, her campaign said she participated in a citizen union panel entitled Recognizing New York Journalists Who Make Democracy Work, after which she and other panelists were awarded glass apples with their names on it. So, I mean, what they're doing here is basically scoffing at the award award trying to say oh well this is basically a participation trophy that she received all the panelists got glass apples i mean how smug and elitist of them they're trying to find anything again like i wasn't joking when i said they're trying to throw whatever they could at Namiki Kanst in hopes of finding out what would stick because, I mean, let's get to the last line here. So it's pretty ironic. They say much of the rest of her life remains occluded by imprecision, except your article is imprecise because if their campaign has to come out afterwards and say, look, there are 48 inaccuracies here, then you need to just not 
write this article. They were just dead set on writing this article and were hoping that Namiki Konst would fill in the blanks for them, but you didn't give her a long enough timeline. And I get it that people will push back and say, well, of course, Namiki is going to say that. But other people who were referenced in this article as allies of Namiki Konst, like Josh Fox, even he said, yeah, this article was awful. He said, quote, Politico's incoherent hit job on Namiki Konst gets many things just flat wrong, not just about her, but about me. But I was with her at Standing Rock under fire. This is so typical. They've been attacking Bernie peeps like crazy, and they are willfully obscuring her record and her accomplishments. That's bad journalism. Yellow journalism. It's shameful. We must stand up for ordinary New Yorkers and vote for Namiki Konst on Tuesday, and Politico call me and report on all the stuff you left out. Yeah, and that's exactly it. You know, it's it's not just about Nimiki Konst and trying to defeat her in this public advocate race, but it's anyone who's a progressive, anyone who's tied to Bernie Sanders because she was a surrogate for Bernie back in 2016. She is someone who he put on the DNC Unity Reform Commission to reform the DNC. So she's a true progressive. She's a strong progressive. So reading this article, I actually felt really bad for her because here she is. She's dedicating her time to try to run to be the public advocate of New York City because she is believing in these things that she's talking about. She wants to make a difference. And Politico comes long just releases this hatchet job on her i mean i would be embarrassed to put this out it's embarrassing so i will leave you with this ad and let numiki Konst make the case for herself because if you have tuned into this show or any other progressive media outlet you know what numiki Konst stands for and you know who she is she's not wishy-washy she's someone who is a fighter for the progressive movement and it's not just that she's fighting for people in new york city but what she's doing is a microcosm of what we want to accomplish across the country so i'll leave you with numiki Konst. i think this is the last ad that she created but please if you live there vote for numiki Konst. New York lawmakers have let us down. Same elected officials taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from real estate developers now want to be watchdogs over them. We need lower rents. We need higher wages. We need an actual watchdog. I'm an investigative reporter. I've exposed powerful interests, and as your public advocate, I'll take on abuses by developers and their influence over government. I'm Nomiki Konst. I approve this message, and I'm asking for your vote. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the program. As usual, we can't end the show without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show not just to survive, but thrive as well. Thank you all so much. I will see you next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. This has been the Humanist Report. Take care. You could support the Humanist Report at Patreon dot com slash humanist report but trust me i'd have way more supporters on patreon if that was my podcast sad <laughs>